I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There comes a time when every life goes off course. In this desperate moment, you must choose your direction. Will you fight to stay on the path while others tell you who you are? Or will you label yourself? Will you be honored by your choice? Or will you embrace your new path? Each morning, you choose to move forward. Or you choose to simply give up. The choice is yours. Welcome to the As Told by Nomads podcast. Where you'll learn how nomads, third culture kids, entrepreneurs, and leaders all over the world embrace their global identity and use their difference to make a difference. And now, having lived on four different continents, here's your host, Tayo Roxas. everybody to another episode of As Told by Nomads. Today's episode is with Charles Davis. Charles and I met when I was doing, uh, was hosting the panel at Now This News on the Black Lives Matter movement and the perception of it and why people have such different opinions in that. And, and we, uh, we developed a relationship since then and he's been grateful and graceful uh, rather to, to come on the show. I'm really excited to have him on the show. So currently... Charles is the co-director of higher education research at the University of uh, Pennsylvania Race and Equity Center, and we're going to dive into a lot of topics as, as it pertains to using and building digital movements to, to stand up and um, for the voiceless, really. So I'm really, really excited to have him on the show. Thank you, Charles, for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me, Teo. No, pleasure's mine. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? You, you, have, a, you have a bit of a similar background that I, that I did, so I'm curious to for you to tell the audience that. Yeah, um, so I, I guess my journey is both different and very similar as a lot of people. I'm sure those that are, you know, tuned into your podcast, uh, you know, are people that move around a lot. Mm-hmm. So growing up as a, as a military brat, my father in the, in the U.S. Army, uh, we moved a ton. Um, and so I've just lived in a bunch of, of different places similar to yourself, you know, with your, your possibly being a diplomat. Um, and so that's really stuck with me in terms of the way I try to experience as much of the world as possible. And, and so with that, you know, it took me to uh, state to, to go to grad, which is at Florida State University, Tallahassee, Florida. Um, and, you know, there I studied English and, and Africana studies, uh, which kind of got me really, you know, interested in 
an academic life and what it meant to be, you know, a researcher and to produce new knowledge and contribute to the ways we think about uh, the way the world works. And so that, that then led me to, to come to Philly for, for my first time in, in graduate school um, about seven, eight years ago now. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of continued my learning in that in that same way and eventually went on to the University of Arizona to, to pursue my doctorate. And now I've been back. And then all through that time, you know, I've taken time to work in a, in a variety of different contexts, whether that's, you know, some things that I was doing in marketing and advertising or um, in, in student leadership development and college levels and, and a bunch of other things. Um, so, yeah, I've just had like fortuitous opportunities to, you know, explore and see the world, um, you know, on you know, terms that weren't necessarily my own as a child, but things that stuck with me and have allowed me to meet, you know, interesting people like yourself and share stories and, and build relationships with a, a larger global community. No, I love it. And and the thing with you is that we'll get into this later in the interview is you, you see the world um, and the different perceptions that people have. I'm just curious as to what you've learned from all your travels and all the studies that you, you know, you've accumulated over the years. What have you learned about the way people see and perceive differences? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I think every culture has a way of, of determining difference, right? Um, and there are similarities in the ways that we do that. I think one thing that I've been uh, fortunate enough to see, um, and you talk about this, right, the side of embracing your global advantage, well, to some extent as an American, right, that we are already predisposed and privileged in ways that a lot of people from a lot of other places aren't. Um, and so it allowed me to, to not only see you know, that how people are living differently, but how what we do in America often affects the broader world. And that could be, um, you know, whether it's the implications of the policy decisions that we make or just even our, our own politics. You know, we're going through this presidential election cycle. And, uh, you know, one of the bigger sound bites of that is is the voice of Donald Trump. And so that for a lot of people um, is, is most perfect, perfectly sums up what it's like to to be in America with this particular you know, history and past. Uh, where you have someone who's saying the types of things that he's saying um, that people, you know, in this country, white folks in particular, um, are, are, you know, really resonating with. And so uh, so with that, what I've started to notice is this idea of what we call like the global south. Right. And so when we think about, um, you know, folks from different parts of the world who, you know, have had larger histories of, of being marginalized or being oppressed, whether that's through, you know, exploitation of labor or whether that's through racism that seems to be pervasive in a global context. Um, that there are a lot of similarities and there's ways that we've created society that doesn't fully recognize the humanity of all people. And that isn't just something that's limited to the outside world. Again, you know, we talk about so many different countries, right? We build our policies around these ideas that other countries are in need of our help and that they're, you know, behind the ball in terms of how they've treated their citizens. And we're doing many of the same things here. And so it's it's been really uh, humbling in, in many ways, but also very challenging and troubling to see that the things that we deal with here in America in terms of the, the ways in which we treat citizens of color and black folks in particular, our marginalization of women are things that are also happening in other parts of the world, but we just often view them differently because here it's a little bit more sanitized. The optics are a little bit better. Um, and so I, I've really been able to take on that idea that what we're fighting here is being fought around the world. And so our struggles are interlinked and they need to be interconnected and we need to be having more conversations and, and build solidarity between you know everything that's happening from what, what was going on in Ferguson, Missouri a few years ago to what's you know been going on for the better part of 60, 70 years in Palestine. Uh, that's so interesting because, you know, some of the uh, the inequalities that you brought up in, you know, in, when you were talking just now, you know, reminds me of what Colin Kaepernick just did. Uh, and, you know, when, yeah. this, when this podcast comes out, you know, he basically, you know, sat down with his peaceful protest um, as a, you know, as a way to say he, you know, he can't really stand up for what's what he feels like 
is a country that doesn't treat minorities well. Yeah. That brought about an interesting response where you got a lot of people saying that that was uh, a disrespect to all the people that fought for the country or fight for the country currently. Then, sure. Yeah, and then there was the other side, people saying, well, that has nothing to do with that. This is more about what he's saying and how he wants the country to live up to his ideals. How do you feel mm-hmm. like we can move past these protests and and get into solution-making mode? Well, I mean, I think the protests are presenting some solutions, right? Um, part of the, the challenge for the nation is being as good as promise, right? Um, and that's pretty much what everybody is calling for. You know, we have a nation that's built on these ideas that has yet to be fully realized with the uh, exception of a few people, right, that, that maybe challenge that narrative. Um, and so I think with the protests that you're seeing, um, you know, there, there, are being, there are solutions that are being presented. The interesting thing is the hypocrisy that happens in both the media, but also in the public imagination about oh, absolutely. what constitutes legitimate protest. I mean, on one hand, you're saying, well, we want it to be peaceful. And you're and then you have a, you know, a guy like Colin Kaepernick, who's uh, you know, a fraternity brother of mine and, and someone who I definitely uh, admire and respect for what he's doing, um, who's simply just sitting down. Right. And so it's like, well, on the one hand, you don't want us to, you know, it's almost like the, the, the privilege that comes in yeah. uh, the form of people that are in power are, are trying to dictate how we respond to the historical and continued injustices that affect us. And that's in and of itself, um, you know, a problem. Right. right. It's like the, there's no proper way for the people in power to hear voices of dissent, even if it's, you know, whether we need to actually take to the streets in, in a larger form or fashion or whether we just need to sit out something that we feel isn't um, really representative of us. And, and it's also this idea, and Michael Eric Dyson talks about this a lot, the sort of historical amnesia that the American imagination has. Um, and so when you think about, you know, the flag or when you think about the national anthem, you know, on the one hand, first of all, the people that were fighting for those liberties and those justices and those freedoms also are represented by people that look like me and you, right? right. There were black people very much a part of that ongoing struggle, and really those who have tried to hold most accountable, but there have been indigenous folks that have been in that space. There have been folks at the LGBTQ community who have all fought for, you know, this country and what it stands for. So that's sort of one thing. Uh, But that also when the country was conceptualized, right, it was a country that really came to its own based on a foundation of genocide of the indigenous people and then the enslavement of black folks from other parts of the world. And so when you think about that history, then you can understand why it's a a challenge for us to embrace something that's never, you know, really embraced us. And James Baldwin talks about this, too, that you come to a point where you realize the the flag to which you have pledged allegiance has no allegiance to you. Um, And so we've been thinking about this for a long time, but people misremember that um, and, and it's really emblematic by the responses, right? Like people that are coming out and saying the things that they're saying, like, this is exactly what we're talking about, that's, right? That's, Your response yeah. to me simply wanting to sit out. Hmm. That's exactly why we're protesting. Um, and so I think in terms of the solution piece that you mentioned, you know, most recently what's been um, been on a lot of people's minds is the, the Vision for Black Lives platform that came out, right? Um, in which the movement actually articulated, you know, many different policy points, which was a coalition of individual actors, of organizations as a part of this space. We said, well, you got, y'all have been pressing us for some solutions other than our protesting, wanting our voices to be heard. And so then they came up with a platform and now everybody has a critical perspective on that, even though the things that people are asking for um, are things that we've been asking for for decades, um, things that seem to be reasonable and things that we as a nation are committing resources to in other parts of the world. So I don't know if you may have seen um, the other, one of the other articles that I posted is that you see that the United States has committed um, re- to provide reparations to some Holocaust survivors from France who were shipped out from France to concentration camps. Um, and I think it's about 90 folks in this particular way and a total amount of about $11 million. And so when people want to say that our request or ask for reparations is, is um, 
something that's not feasible. Well, it is because we're doing it for other you know parts of of these communities who have experienced these things, and it should be known too that you know the majority of those folks that are perceiving reparations from the Holocaust are white. So we can't overlook that point either. So what is what is the nation's disposition to wanting to provide some reparative justice? Um, you know, and it's not about people looking for a check. It's about actually divesting from the systems that are are punishing us and investing in communities. Uh, why can't we do that? And and I think that that's part of what it is, is that we're trying to make people be accountable, trying to make the nation to be accountable for what it says it's supposed to do. And fundamentally, the nation doesn't want to respond to us in kind. I mean, you touched on a lot of things there, and I'm going to I'm going to peel them one by one. And first thing that I will say with, with the Colin thing, I I was I was so happy. I'm not I'm not a Niners fan. All right. So, I'm you know, my team is a uh, is the other hated team in America, the Patriots. But I remember just feeling such sense of pride because I was I was listening to the arguments that people were making. Mm-hmm. They were saying, oh, he's carving out his, his uh, second career. He wants to do you – know, he wants to make himself known. And I kept saying to them, and I was like, how does him being a second string or him being raised by white parents have anything to do with him fighting you know, for, for, for the oppressed? Or, right. Doesn't that promote the idea that you're saying people can't grow? Someone said it was disingenuous. But I'm like, first of all, this attention that you're saying Kaepernick is seeking is not one that's that's a good type of attention. This is one that could lose endorsements. This is one that could affect his livelihood. And he's still doing that because he right. wants to be at peace with basically being an American. And and for me, you know, it evokes memories of like Muhammad Ali. When Everybody likes to talk about Muhammad Ali now. But when he first did those yep. things, he lost three years of his fight in prime years. He was ostracized. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And so I think there's a selective memory with these things when people say, oh, you stood up for this. Why can't you be like that? Why can't you be like that? Even with uh, Martin Luther King, if you read some of his letters, it's not because everybody likes to tell you which type of protester you should be like. So yeah. I, well, white, folks love, white folks love invoking Dr. King, right? Um, and selectively doing so. And not listening to the full message, not you know understanding that Martin Luther King himself was a radical, right, and realized partly the limitations of the the civil disobedience strategy at a certain point. Um, I mean, we just had the um, that story that broke about the the coach from Clemson, Dabo Sweeney, you know, saying that that he didn't support what Kaepernick was doing. He didn't say he would punish his players for doing those things, uh, but then he invoked Dr. King, you know, completely out of context. Um, and then that's something that people are latching on to, right? That that's sort of like the emblematic model of what we should all aspire to be in terms of, you know, fighting for justice. And then just to be clear, right, like the nation killed Dr. King, despite all of that peaceful protesting, right? And despite that ideology, um, you know, the the American people still killed that person that they think is so great. So, again, you know, if the, if the end goal ultimately or, or the outcome is going to be the same, then, you know, how could you dare kill us violently and then ask us to protest peacefully? Absolutely. I mean, he he never got to grow up to see what he envisioned or what he wanted to see. The mm-hmm. the other thing is, um, this is the thing. I, I you and I interact with a lot of people from different races, different backgrounds. There are people from different backgrounds that want to be part of the conversations, but um, they feel like they don't know how to get involved or something. What what would you say to that? I know you do this a lot more, and you, I'm, I'm sure you come across yeah. people saying, "Well, I, I want to do it, but I, you know, I feel like you're too aggr- you're aggressive." Or what's the other word they always say? You're aggressive. It's too much. I feel out of place. What would you say? Because how can they, how can allies be part of the movement? Yeah, I mean, I think the the first part of that is, is you know, unlike maybe other situations and circumstances in which you have found yourself, is that you are not here to be a leader in this particular space. You're here first and foremost to lift, to listen, right? It's this idea of what we call deferential allyship, that we show 
uh, deference to the people who are most directly affected and impacted by the things for which we are fighting. And so for white folks, right, it doesn't mean coming to, you know, a Black Lives Matter meeting and taking up space and airtime uh, instead of just listening to the concerns of the black folks who are there and who have been a part of this fight for a long time. Um, but but also saying that, you know, the work that one can do as an ally is best done with other allies. And so what, what I mean by that is, you know, um, in terms of the things that you hear, in terms of the things that you can learn, because there's there's so many resources available and so many texts of people who write on, you know, what it means to understand whiteness and white supremacy and your place in it, um, that you should be doing work with other members of the white community who aren't maybe as committed to the, the struggle as you are or even aware of some of these same things that you yourself weren't aware initially. And that's where the work that allyship is, is most important. Um, and, and even beyond allyship, you know, accomplices, you know, we're here to dismantle a structure of white supremacy. And so we need people who are a part of and benefit from that system to continue to challenge it from the inside and that those discussions need to uh, to happen um, with members of your family, right? From, you know, people in your 99.9% white community that you maybe grew up in. Um, but again, it, you know, the role is to listen and understand and to take back into these spaces that we don't necessarily have access to as people of color and continue to chip away and dismantle at the power structure so that we can have some level of equality and equity um, in, in our communities, whether that's socially or professionally or, or whatever the case may be. And I think the other thing is, too, is to understand that there's going to be some discomfort. And as an educator, right, fundamentally, I believe that discomfort is where learning takes place. There's a, a stark difference between what's uncomfortable, right, and then what's unsafe. And I think the anxiety that comes around this, especially for, for white folks, is what we you know call white fragility, that you know, you're in this moment where you have to deal with racial duress and racial stress in a way that you've never had to deal with in your life. Um, and you sort of cave into that pressure and you start to get really defensive opposed to saying that, you know what, the claims that people are making are legitimate about this larger power structure. I'm a part of that. I benefit from that. And, and you just have to be honest with yourself and say that not only is this uncomfortable, but there's an opportunity for me to learn. And more importantly, the, the momentary experience of, uh, of discomfort I have in this moment is what people of color live through on a day-to-day -day basis just by being who they are right? Just for you and I to make it to the train and not necessarily have to get stopped by anybody, you know, and frisk just because we fit a uh, ambiguous profile is something that as a white person, yeah, you just don't have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so, so again, I think it's important that, you know, people are coming into the space to listen, to learn, are finding resources for themselves, you know, whether that's just looking for a variety of different texts or books or classes or seminars, um, and also having a, a critical engaging group of friends who don't let you just slide with microaggressions or don't let you just slide with, you know, trying to use stereotypes as jokes um, and actually hold you accountable and that you can replicate that behavior with other people in your in your circle. Yeah. Yeah. Get comfortable being uncomfortable. The uh, the idea of, you know, coming face to face with the reality of the way the world is can be, you know, it can be really, really just eye opening. And some of you might feel like, oh, my gosh, this is too uncomfortable. I want to go away from that. But going in from that only accentuates and make the pro makes the problem worse because there's a system in place and the system has been in place for a long, long, long time. And that's only going to continue if no one's brave enough to challenge the system. It's one thing if it's challenged from a group of minorities who have constantly known what that's like, but it's another thing if it's mm -hmm. actually challenged from the people who make the system and who set the system in motion. That's when real change can be affected and then you know, more things can be exposed. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think the other caveat, too, is that, you know, allyship work isn't just the work of white folks. And what I mean by that is, you know, even within our own communities of color um, and, and maybe in black communities, even in particular, right, that there's also power dynamics at play, you know, for you and I as, as black men. 
right? We take up space in a certain way. And so we also need to think about allyship inside of our community as what it means to listen to the women who are in these spaces, right? Um, and, and what it means to take a back seat and put our male privilege to the side so we can hear the concerns of, of people who don't have the male privilege that we have and the bodies that we have. Um, and so that's really important too, that we're also you know, doing what we can to engage with lessons that we can learn from black feminism um, uh, about our own power and privilege and how we're also a part of the problem and that while we are trying to build this racial solidarity, that that fundamentally can be undermined by the actions that we do or don't take as people who are in power in communities of color, right? And so I think that that's an important piece where it's not putting all the pressure um, on white folks, and you know, just in general. It is for when we're talking about dismantling white supremacy, when we're talking about dismantling male-dominated systems of power, right? Patriarchy, patriarchy, misogyny, yeah. the objectification yeah. of women, right? That's that's the work you got to do. And so you and I have to have those conversations, and then we have to have those conversations with other men. And so I think that's an important piece too that. You know, it ain't just about white folks. What we're trying to build here will be more so disrupted internally by us not dealing with these other power dynamics at play as, as people who are men, as people who identify as heterosexual, um, so forth and so on. Yeah, it's funny you're speaking my language because that that's you know the, the things that I focus on are you know gender equality, um, cultural competency, and education. I recently did a video on, on you know gender equality day and talking about the the patriarchy and how we as men need to step up. The interesting response to that, this, this is the most viewed video I've had on YouTube, but they were 90% negative. And they were from a lot of men saying, you've been brainwashed. What about um, the fact that a guy can hit a, a woman, uh, a guy can hit a guy and a woman can't hit a guy? They're just bringing up all these random things. Oh, wage, yeah. ga wage gap is, 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 is a myth. Check out this link. You didn't have any. You know, there are all these things like, oh, it's not a wage gap. Is it, you know, it's an income gap. They take less of jobs. It's blah, 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 blah. So... There's already, you know, the reason I was bringing this up is that there are many, many fights that can be had. There are many, many battles that need to be fought concurrently and at the same time mm -hmm. because it's all fundamentally going to help advance the or eradicate the system, whether it's the patriarchy, whether it's the system against minorities. But what would you say for those that really feel like feminism is a myth and that there's no difference with feminism and black feminism? Uh, so that's a, an interesting two part question. So one, um, you know, whether it's a myth to me, that's someone who just isn't, you know, well versed. And so part of the, the conversation, right, as someone who does training and education on this a lot, we have to often have this debate about whether what we're discussing is uh, a testament to someone's moral character or to their intellectual competency. And so what we do is to say that really, you know, your disbelief in feminism is based on a lack of competency about what feminism actually is. Right. Not just in terms of a way of thinking, but actually reading right uh, what people have said um, from this perspective that really turns power relations on its head. Right. When we think about the books that you and I have traditionally read, given the schools that we've gone to, right, many of those books and those articles and those lessons and those instructors and teachers were men. Um, and so the perspectives were from from a man's perspective. And so even just to say, well, what are women saying about similar topics would be a question that one would need to ask. They need to engage with. Um, in, a, in a really meaningful way of just trying to understand that opinion, even if it's not something with which you agree. Um, and part of that's challenging, right? Because what we know from the research and the way that people develop uh, from an identity and human development perspective is we often operate from the pain of our marginalized identities, right? And the arrogance of our mainstream identities. And so for, we'll say for black men or for men of color, you know, we operate in a space where we see white supremacy pushing us down and we want to focus that on, on that. And as soon as we have this conversation come up about, you know, patriarchy within our communities, 
we automatically operate from the arrogance of what it means to be a man and the power we have in that space. And if we don't, you know, really take a step back, we don't see how the parallels between the rhetoric we're using to justify our position of power is the same rhetoric we're fighting when white folks and white supremacy is using that same kind of uh, logic, right, in their conversation. Mm. So it's really important that you use feminism as a way to reinterpret the world that otherwise would not be told had women not taken that stand. And I think the other part of your question is the difference between feminism and black feminism. Well, the, the main critique here, um, right, which is not to speak for feminism or other feminists, but that, you know, feminism by and large, when it began, was something that really focused on, centered, and benefited white women. And so there was a lack of racial analysis in the feminist movement in which all of the things that were being fought for, despite even the labor of women of color and black women in particular in this country, um, was to the gain of white women. So when we think about the affirmative action conversation, so much of that gets thrown on, you know, this idea that black people are lazy and trying to take advantage of the system when the number one beneficiaries of affirmative action were actually white women, right? And so when we saw that women were finally becoming a more you know, uh, direct part of our society that black women and Latinas and other women of color were being left to the side. And so you now have emergent these feminisms of color, one of which would be black feminism that says we're actually going to be intentional about having a racial component to this where we can say, yes, on one hand, we are. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. All marginalized as women, but... As women of color, we are double marginalized, right? This idea of intersectionality, that racism and sexism are converging to create these sets of unique experiences, most of which disenfranchise our power in the systems of voting, equal employment, housing, education, and so forth and so on. And so I think that's really the what people are wrestling with, you know, when you see online and on Twitter, like the limitations of white feminism, this is what people are talking about, um, is that it doesn't apply to us as women of color because you have no analysis of race. And so you need those parts and parcels. So it's not just, you know, reading and being familiar with like Gloria Steinem, right? It would be like, okay, well, you also need to be reading, um, you know, Patricia Hill Collins, right? And, and Bell Hooks and Kimberly Crenshaw and these other women who can give you an even deeper perspective on what feminism means for someone who's double and triple marginalized. Yeah. And, and the whole idea, I mean, this is something that I, you know, I feel like we all, this is why I resist the idea of of the, against the argument that Kaepernick, oh, he was all by himself. Now all of a sudden as an activist, everybody can grow. Okay, so the, I, I resist that idea because yeah, it's sure. just. I think a lot of people don't think of feminism and racism um, in, in uh, you know, in a less than binary way. Everybody likes to do a black and white, and th and that's part of the problem. Where if it doesn't fit in this box, it's another box. You just mentioned Gloria Steinem uh, and the um, and several others. You've got to be able to look at the layers and be able to see that there are different, different, different things that are happening in each environment. For example, in the 
in the feminist movement, if you say, uh, you know, when we're encouraging a lot of women to speak up, and I always do, you got to see how the optics look when a black woman does that, when she's reinforcing, reinforcing a certain stereotype that's been created for years where it's the angry black woman or something like that. And then, you know, it yeah. doesn't affect, it, I mean, it might not affect a white person that way. It's like, oh, wow, she stood up for herself. But if it's a black person, you're like, oh, okay, there you go. Exactly. The, you know, so there's so many layers that, that people have to work against. And I think we all need to do internal internal cleansing, but we all have to be aware of what our prejudices are and how we, we treat um, women of color, women in general, and just minorities overall. Because yeah. if we're not honest... Yeah, I mean, if, we're saying, yeah. if we say we're fighting for justice and liberation, right, well, to, like, who does that include? Yeah. Right. And so we say that in the context of race. Well, yeah, surely there are more people that identify as black than black, heterosexual, cisgendered men. Right. And so if we're not talking about also the liberation, freedom and justice of of queer people of color. Mm. Right. Or those that are living with disabilities or all these other sort of identity categories that we often just don't think about. Then we have a very limited view of what this looks like, because Absolutely. while we have been fighting this version of freedom, we're also keeping captive these other groups of people who really are at the forefront of, of this dialogue and this conversation, right? So, you know, part of, you know, things that we, we've talked about in the past is the extent to which uh, the movement for Black Lives and Black Lives Matter is really constructed by and supported and led by, um, you know, women and queer women of color, uh, you know, in particular, right? Um, that they really are the people that set up, you know, much of the infrastructure of how we discuss and engage this topic now um, and, been ahead, and have been leaders of various organizations of pulling these things together. Mm. Um, and we, you know, continue to not fully tell those stories. And we've been doing this for some time. We think about the civil rights movement in the same way where we talk about King and we talk about Malcolm and we forget about Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker um, and even Bayard Rustin, you know, who himself was a was a gay black man that got pushed to the fringes of the movement despite organizing the, the march on Washington for jobs and freedom. Um, and so, we again, we have to challenge ourselves of like when we say liberation, who's included in that? And if it's not including everyone then we have a very limited perspective on what it means. And we realize also that we can't be free until everyone is free. Absolutely. Right? That's, that's really so important. true. That is so true because the, you can't just selectively fight for justice. It, you know, if, you, if you're yep. against inequality, then you're against inequality. And that includes a bunch of, of people. It, and, and that's been my biggest frustration, I guess. And I'm glad you, you voiced it so eloquently because you did that better than I could. It's just the idea of, of when someone says, well, you're not this, you're not that. I mean, you've got it. This is more of a fundamental human rights issue. It's not even like I'm going to fight for my people. I'm going to do that. Their injustice is just injustice. And you have to be able to do yeah. the research to do that. I mean, coming from Nigeria and having grown up in five countries, the, the, the reason why gender equality is so important to me is because I, I, you know, I come from several cultures where a lot of the women are forced to get married before the age of 18. You know, some, some women, you know, don't even get the same level of education because they're already seen as less than, than male people before they're, they're born. It's such a patriarchal society where, you know, the roles are already defined for you before you can even form sentences. And that, you know, these are things that I feel like if you, if you don't fight against, they become a problem. Because if you fix one inequality, there's another thing that's just going to happen and over and over again. And this is how, you know, we never move forward. So, I mean, I'm sorry to, to go like that, but it just, I get so passionate about this stuff. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I absolutely, you know, agree. Um, and again, when we center the, the role and the voice that women have played in challenging these things even more so than ourselves, um, that we see substantive changes. There was some uh, article that was going around um, 
about the, the chief of Malawi that had stopped over 800 child marriages and banned sexual initiations of girls yeah. um, in order for them to go to school and have equitable opportunities, right? Um, that those things are happening and have always been happening as a result of the, the diligent and fearless labor of, of women, um, sure. you know, and others who are already, again, mostly marginalized. Absolutely. I, it's so true. I, this, a lot of your work focuses on um, the use of digital media in contemporary, you know, student org- mm-hmm. organization and movement. Why do you think this is so important? Um, I think it's important largely because it's such a big and integral part of our day to day experiences. And I say this again from a position of privilege. Right. So, you know, part of the conversation has been that, you know, social media and technology is sort of ubiquitous. Right. It's it's gone to the point where it's just everywhere all the time and everyone has access to it. Um, and part of that is true, right? But there's also some realities where there's plenty of places in, in the United States and also in other countries where, yeah, high-speed internet access isn't something that's easily available. Um, but but it, it becomes important because not so much of, of wanting to just say that it's important, but we've seen how important it's been in a variety of social justice movements uh, as of late. And so we can go as far back as what took place during the Arab Spring um, and the use of text messages to sort of coordinate activities and, and opportunities for, for dissent and, and direct action. Um, and we can also see the ways in which um, what it's looked like in the United States of not just amplifying, you know, things that are happening. Like when Ferguson started happening, it first broke news on the on the web, right? It first broke news on Twitter with people who were live tweeting and talking about what was going on after Mike Brown was shot and killed. Um, and so what we, we think of this idea of what we call like scale change, yeah. And that the, one of the biggest advantages of social media is that it increases the extent to which people are aware and can participate in a multitude of ways in speaking out about these types of things. And more people can be involved at a quicker rate. Um, people can mobilize in an in a easier fashion by, you know, being uh, letting them know, you know, just by a tweet or a Facebook post or, you know, an event or something of that nature. Say, hey, we're going to be here. Here's what you need to bring. Here's what we need you to do. And here's what our plan is. And we can do that sort of instantaneously. Um, but it's also important, I think, because we sometimes overstate the novelty of media and technology and don't also think about the ways in which traditional and fundamental organizing practices are built into uh, the ways we operate on these spaces. Right. And so fundamentally, if relationships we know are really important to building a strong organization um, within a movement. Well, yeah, that we just have now found ways to build relationships primarily online that maybe also you know, engage with us offline. Um, at a certain point. But fundamentally, that idea was something we were doing at a one to one level when we didn't have, you know, Internet when we didn't have social media at our fingertips on our phones. And so we're just taking those same types of principles and those same types of ideas and putting it into this new format. Um, and, and I think it's also important because, again, many of the, the movements that have taken place and, and always taken place have been led by young people and by youth. And this is a, a language that they're familiar with and they speak. And what I argue in my work um, right, is that people aren't going to social media to sort of do and be novel, that this is actually a part of their everyday uh, way of being, right? Even for you and I, like when we get up, chances are we check, you know, for some emails, but we go to Twitter and Facebook, see what's going on in the world today. It's just a part of our routine, right? It's a context that's normal to us. Um, and that's what people are doing, right? They're doing and taking the, the fight for justice any and everywhere that they already are. It's not, oh, we need to make sure we're on Twitter. It's like, well, I'm on Twitter every day, so it's just going to be a part of how I get this message out. Um, and I think it's important that we understand how people are using this uh, because as people are coming behind who have access to technology, doesn't mean that they know how to use it in savvy ways. And so I think it's helpful for us to understand like how intentional people are using these things so we can help train and educate you know, another generation of freedom fighters who also help and train and educate us um, how to improve our practices and how these tools can be useful to us at least as long as we have them. Yeah, yeah, and I remember having a conversation with you about this. You described the internet 
as the wild wild west and I, yeah. I think it's so apt and it's it's definitely shaking up things and even moving away from just um you know pr- using that as a form of uh you know protest and or just making movement it plays a big role in representation as you can as you can see some of the media whether it's youtube channels or whoever's mm-hmm. di- dictating presence and i've noticed a lot of gen zers you know i i talked to a lot of gen zers i'm i'm a millennial but they're f- favorite influencers are youtube personalities you know whether it's they're watching someone you know play a video game for days or makeup artists or just someone just talk that's what they Mm -hmm. come back to school to watch so it's um, it's so interesting seeing that shift take place and and see how traditional media is realizing that quickly and they're saying oh my goodness if we don't do this now we're gonna be so behind and you can i mean even this fall you've got shows like atlanta um, yeah. HBO Insecure. There's so many shows that are now coming up. They're like, okay, we really have to start doing this kind of stuff because, and 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 um, and, and I, I feel I feel good about it, but I also want people to understand. You know, I hate when people just make decisions to just say, oh, because I know that diverse TV is great, I'm going to put it on my TV. I want people to understand the power of that because sometimes I don't know that these executives actually understand what they're doing. I just feel like it's a money grab right. sometimes. So well, that's, that's the thing, right? That's, that's the limitation of the capitalist perspective, right? On what's going to make us money. And so one of the key points of, of this idea of new media um, is that it challenges the conventional ways that we understand of doing society, of doing politics, of doing media, because it gives us an accountability measure, right? For, mm. for many of us, we just don't trust what the news is saying on a day-to-day basis, right? And if we put it in the context of these police shootings, right? What comes out in the press conference, we ultimately know is not the story. And that we can go to a different medium with somebody else who we recognize their authority and their truth telling ability and say, well, what is the actual story? What is not being told to us? And those are people that are on the ground in these different cities. Right. right? These are people who are telling us that, well, hey, the news just reported that, um, you know, what happened to Tamir Rice was that he drew a weapon on, you know, police officers. And then you get to the account of people that are actually in Ohio. Right. That are saying, no, he was doing what normal 12 year old boys do. He was playing in a park. Right. With a toy gun. And people, you know, the police came and unloaded on him within 12 seconds of determining that he was a man that was a threat. Right. And you don't hear that story. And that's the important part of this piece is that it's an accountability measure where to to one extent we will challenge what it is that we hear in the traditional news media. um, Right. But that also traditional news media has to go to the Internet and to Twitter and to Facebook to even get some of these news stories, which is the other thing. So if we have a direct line to what's happening in the closest proximity of the event, then, yeah, we're going to go there. And that's a challenge that media companies are trying to figure out, navigate. And something that we as people in this space have to also think, well, how do we interface with that group and make sure that our stories aren't co-opted, that they're not, you know, strangled and, and not allowed to breathe and the truth not allowed to be told because of different competing corporate interests. And that's an interesting thing that we have to try to wrestle with now, too, is them being able to say, oh, you know, say oh, I've seen your, your podcast and you reach all these other people. Are you interested in taking a job here at this company? Um, only to realize that the voice that you've grown on your own is not a voice that they'll let you continue, but a voice that they want to take over and, and disempower through giving you, you know, the things that we, some of us aspire to have. And that's a whole nother piece of that challenge. And we see that happening with some of the people in the movement now that, you know, people are critical of, of how they're ascending into public celebrity. And that's not really what this is supposed to be about, but happens nonetheless. No, no, it's true. And it's the same thing with your, your, your friend, uh, the host of VH1 Life. Um, I've seen mm-hmm. how his career has gone, uh, gone with you know from the CNN. Well, he was in Fox originally, right? Yeah. And then CNN, and then and now the VH1 Life has, has been a has been an interesting response to that because some people are like, what? And some people are like, ah. So it's um, but the whole idea is that sometimes traditional media they want to they like what you did 
by yourself. And then when they get you there, they're like, ah, mm-hmm. oh, we've got to craft it a certain way. And I'm, yeah. that that's just my inner challenge. I'm like, if you want the person the way they are, just be brave enough to allow that person just to remain that way because that's how the world is. So Yeah, and that's one of the beautiful things about, you know, Mark's uh, presence in this space or Melissa Harris-Perry or any number of these other folks is that they have the integrity to stick to their guns and saying, here's what I want to do. And if we're not going to do that, that's fine. Um, then, you know, we just won't have a, have a show. But if we are going to do it, then let's get serious. And let's do some real work. Yeah. Um, and I think the other thing about that, too, is there's also giving people that occupy that space and the, the perspectives we kind of thrust upon them is that they're they're entitled to doing things their own way as well. Right. And so, you know, some of the feedback that people have for for, for Mark's new show was like, oh, well, you know, I thought it was going to be a little bit more like intellectual and like all these other things. It's like, well, Mark is also a full human being and he engages with people on a really, uh, you know, personal uh, level that involves also these other things that we watch on TV and these other stories, right? Um, but that he has like the wit about him to to bring in these intellectual arguments and to provide some analysis in a space that isn't you know uh, mundane and boring and suffocating, um, and in a format that we actually respond to as as younger audiences, right? So I think that that's important too that we give people the flexibility um, to be able to take breaks from doing those things in the way we think they should and doing it in a way that they think that they should also. Yeah. Um, and so that's one thing I really appreciate about his show is he can do the fun stuff. He can like, you know, snap with folks and, and joke, which is exactly how his personality is. But also, you know, you know, let's have some real honest conversations about some things that are going on, whether that's him bringing up the Colin Kaepernick thing or, you know, even some some conversations most recently uh, about the teacher's aid in Atlanta that people were villainizing for, you know, the clothing choices that she was wearing um, and, and actually writing some substantive, meaningful analysis around that point uh, while already having gotten people's attention from what's popular. Right. So I think that's an important thing for us to, to remember too, that there are different ways to go about doing this work. And we have to allow people to kind of do that in ways that make sense for them and also for the diversity of audiences that they're broadcasting to. Yeah. No. And just for those listening, we're talking about Mark Lamont. Um, and you're so right about that. And, and this, this is, you know, I could do this interview for days, but I know that I have to be respectful of your time. So I want to touch on a few things before we, we absolutely have to wrap because we're, you know, we've done a lot of heavy stuff. You, you ethnography. That's something that yeah. you're currently involved in. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so um, it's it's a big fancy word for a way to do research. Um, so there's a lot of different ways, but ethnography primarily is is qualitative. And what I mean by that is, you know, the the way that we go about research in, in ethnography is to use multiple ways of collecting data. And so that's having you know personal interviews with people. Um, that's you know looking at documents and artifacts from a particular. Uh, you know, group that we're, we're studying. Uh, but most importantly, what it means is that we're doing the long-term immersive kind of study where we actually live and operate on a day-to-day basis with the communities that we try to understand. And so in my case, you know, it was um, not simply wanting to understand activism and just a few activists about their experiences. It was actually moving to the state of Florida or, or moving back, I should say, um, and living with um, and working with the Dream Defenders on a day-to-day basis for, for more than a year. Um, and a year prior to that, doing that in an online space, um, and so ethnography for me is just a very rich way to do what we call, um, you know, providing thick description that we can give you some cultural understanding of how a place works or how a group of people work, um, you know, things that make them who it is that they are, things that are um, unique and special to them, the terms that they use and language that is, is part of that. Um, and so for me, it's just an, a, it's a great way to get a full, you know, comprehensive perspective on, on something um, by doing it differently than how some other forms of research are, are done. All right. And and. Thank you for saying that. Charles is working on a uh, on a visual and digital ethnography called Flourish, and I'm sure it's not done yet, is it? Or is it done? No, 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 yeah. not yet. Yeah, but where can people find it on your website? 
Yeah, so when I do uh, do put it out, it will be um, released on my website, much like my existing research is there. I also have um, a separate site for it, um, which will be you know put out in the same way. But you know, from the visual and digital side, so ethnographies are generally you know turned into books. But again, given the way that we as millennials and even for Gen Zers, the way we uh, accept and digest information, we need other formats, and so this will allow for people to through the medium of film, through the web be able to see, you know, the variety of photos and things that I took during the course of, of this particular study, um, the video of interviews and of direct actions and protests over the course of, of that study to tell a similar story that isn't, you know, done in terms of uh, the best justice cannot be done in a 250 word book. Right. Um, and so although that will happen as well, we want to provide these other sort of vignettes for people to see. And you can see some clips uh, from the early parts of the study actually on activistmillennials.com where I have some of the interviews that are already up there um, in the film. And that's will also be a part of uh, releasing the documentary through that project that I started a few years ago. Right. And you can find all everything about Charles Davis at hfdavis.com. And I'm just going to say that that is because there are many Charles Davises in the world, right? That's why you got yeah. the <laughs> Um Yeah, because I remember I first I did a Google search of you. I was like, I don't know if this is the Charles that, I, that might be meeting. It doesn't look like... Uh, what um what's yeah. <laughs> but um that's 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 well, cool. sort of branding in my name you no know? so i i wanted to leverage that and being the consumer generation it would only make sense so that's why i went with hfdavis.com because there's definitely not two of me with this long name that my parents gave me right that's true that's very true we were we're getting ready to wrap up but this is something that i love about you is the fact that you're multifaceted and we were just talking about that with mark lamont you have mm-hmm. many sides to, to who you are. You do CrossFit. You do, you know, you, you do a lot of this activists. You're a teacher, you're a professor, you're a traveler, you're a cultured individual. One thing that you do that I, I really found interesting was your photography. And you, I know you say you don't consider yourself a photographer, but you hope one day yeah. you might be remembered as one. Why is that? That is so poetic. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's like, you know, as someone who does a lot of different things, um, I know that in each of those individual areas, people have committed their life's work to those things, whether it's the medium of photography and film or whether it's to being an educator or whatever the case is. And so part of it is to honor and do justice to people who have committed and dedicated themselves to that single uh, that single craft and wanting to perfect it. And so I have like really extreme respect, um, you know, for the people who have done this uh, longer and continue to do it. Um, in a, in a better way than even I can, but I would hope that, you know, I can do justice to the format and to the art, um, at some point where a a legitimate photographer, you know, might look at my work and say that this is pretty good. Um, and so that contributes to the culture in that way without needing to own it or to be the most popular or well-received person in that. But it's, you know, something that I enjoy doing. Um, I think being able to stop time is a very interesting idea, um, and being able to look at it and also the perspectives that people bring to photos. Um, that can be seen in a bunch of different ways. I just like the art aspect of it. Um, but yeah, it's just a, it's a humbling thing to even be a part of that community and that circle. I had a unique opportunity a few months ago to be a part of uh, a gallery showing that was all legitimate photographers. And one of the photographers whom I know asked me to be a part of the show. It was a black and white show. You know, pretty much all of my stuff is in black and white. Um, and so that was a really humbling experience to just you know be asked by a photographer in a community of photographers to have my work shown alongside of theirs. So I've started to get some of that validation. But again, I just want to continue to perfect that craft and do it justice and do justice by the people who have committed to you know their lives, or at least this part of their lives, to uh, to doing that work. A picture is worth a thousand words. And um, once again, 
you know, for those listening, you all can find all this at hfdavis.com. So as we wrap up, I always say my mission statement is use your difference to make a difference. That's the premise of everything that I do. Uh, that's, that's what keeps me up. And I'm very curious how you use your difference to make a difference, Charles. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, it's, it's taking that access and the power and the privilege that I've been able to accumulate over these, you know, 32 some odd years um, and be in the room to, to challenge people to be better. And so it's, it's for me being able to use a doctorate as a passport into conversations that otherwise people like us often aren't privy to and get to provide input. Um, you know, it's, it's being, uh, an educator in, uh, pretty much an elite, you know, university space to challenge the ways that people are thinking and to disrupt the power and privilege they've maybe been accustomed to. Um, and so I think that that's, you know, critically important. And then it's also, you know, to, the points that you were just making is that you can do everything you want to do with the life that you have. You may not be able to do it all at the same time, but at some point you can do these different and many and varied things. And so, you know, you don't have to live your life as a one dimensional person, Mm. despite the world telling you that's in your best interest, that you can in fact, you know, be a professor, but also be someone who's into fitness, someone who's into, you know, cooking or someone who's into film and photography or whatever it is. Um, but with that, you have to also invest the time and energy and get those 10,000 hours in, right, um, to, to become as good as you can at those things. And so I think that that's important, too. And I, and I think the generation now really just gets that, you know, everybody that we know has a side hustle. You know, you and I both have sort of day jobs, but we also do the stuff like we're doing right now. Right. Uh, just to continue to push that point that don't let the world dictate who it is you, you are, who it is that you should be, that you have to define yourself for yourself or you'll be crushed into the world's expectations for you. And that's just really, really important. Charles Davis using his difference to make a difference as an activist, as a writer, as a professor, as a uh, just a creative. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. Thank you so much. You definitely are um, a very great bridge because, you, you know, you, you use that your bridge as an educator um, and as, a, as an action doer. And then you, you just use that to to let people see the world in different ways. So I just want to thank you for coming on the show and educating me as well as the audience. Yeah, thanks, Taylor. I really appreciate it. And thanks for As Told by Nomads. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to use your difference to make a difference, as well as for show notes, head over to www.uidmag.com. Till next time, go out and make an impact in your world. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies.